Welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast, the most influential and listened to podcast in auto detailing. Welcome to the community. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pints and Polishing Podcast. You can find us at hypercleanstore.com or even better yet, find me and Marty in the Hyperclean Specialist Group on Facebook. A lot of fun in there, guys sharing. Now you can share reels in there, seeing a little bit more video in that group. I share in there as much as I can, contribute, and it's a lot of fun. Different than a lot of other groups you may have joined detailing related, uh, just a lot more what I call uh, true professionalism, and it's the members in that group do a really great job. So if you haven't checked us out on Facebook, Hyperclean Specialist, I think you'd have a great time there. What a week. Very busy in the shop, very busy in my mobile units, but I want to talk about a certain project. This project was a lot of fun. It was a lot of pressure, but we got to work on a 1995 Carrera 4 Porsche. This project showed me a lot. Number one, we had a customer who basically said to us, hey, I don't want any pre-cut film. I don't want you to use the plotter. I want you to cut it by hand. This is what I want done. And we charged accordingly. You know, basically three times our normal cost to do this bumper because it wasn't the most technical bumper, but it had a lot of hand cutting, a lot of free hand cutting and, and, and trimming. And that's what he wanted. I don't know why he got it in his head. I didn't argue. I gave him a price. He didn't argue. And so we're on our way. This car and this car's story teaches me a lot and was really important for me to, to, to have this story in my shop this week. There are times, and I don't know if everybody's the same on this, where you realize, hey, man, this car and this, this project taught me something, not because of the skills of doing a car, which are important in these projects, but the story behind it, the customer behind it, and, and here's how it worked for us. So we got this car not directly from the customer, but from a race team that we do business with. And this race team is probably runs a shop that's top five or, or 10 in the country and just dealing in Porsches. They're, they're, they do service and all this other stuff. So this car meant a lot to the actual owner. And, and here's the car's story to put it in perspective. This was the I made it car for this customer. And so when this customer purchased this car, it meant a lot to him because it meant that he got to the level he was trying to get. Hey, I've made it. So I'm able to buy this car. And for car guys like me, that's how I man. It's funny, that's how I actually tell you when things happened in my life. When I was able to purchase the next car I wanted to purchase, it signified something to me. And the same goes for almost all you car guys listening or detailers listening. Most people in the cars mark things in their life based on when they made it by what car they were able to buy at that time. And so this Porsche means a lot to this very wealthy buyer. This guy has a ton of homes, a ton of cars, but this 1995 Porsche means something to him because it was the time he said to himself, I made it. This car quickly in its life became a nightmare at one point. And so he has a few homes in Utah. He sends this car off to service and the car's basically gone for two years at this garage in Utah, supposed professionals, whatever. That is not how long a car with under 50,000 miles on it from Porsche should have been in a shop, but he doesn't know that. He's just a guy trying to make sure he does right by this car that he cares a lot about. 
So obviously with me telling you that a, a very low mile Porsche being at a shop for that long, you can tell that this story is not a good feeling for this guy. And so the, sh- the car's at the shop for two years. He gets the car back. And at the time he was in at his Vegas home. And so he tells the shop in Utah, please send the car down to my Vegas home. I can't wait to drive it. Gets it, drives it about 10 minutes, according to him. And the car is now malfunctioning. He's got some type of issue. He gets it back to his garage. He has them come pick it up, goes back to Utah, goes through this rigmarole again. It then comes back to him in Vegas. They say they fixed it. They didn't. They said they fixed something. I'm pretty sure they didn't fix anything on the car after this next story. So he gets the car back again, about a 10 minute drive. The car starts to act funny. He parks it in his garage and for years, never touched the car until he finds the company that I do business with. And he says right to them, Hey, you know, I'm really giving up on this car. I'm about ready to sell it. I hate my life with this car. Now a car, it meant so much to him. So the car, the shop gets the car. So now the guy from the shop is sitting in my shop this week and he goes, you won't even believe it. I'm like, well, what the hell was wrong with the car? He goes, it needed a new alternator. He goes, there was nothing wrong with the car. He says, by what I can tell, they never did anything to the car. So we changed all the fluids. We changed the alternator. The car has been perfect ever since. And he's laughing and I'm laughing. And he goes, look, man, he goes, we're, we're just seeing something on my business in my business that I can't believe. And he starts to go on this conversation. And he goes, I think I could charge $2,500 for a regular oil change. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, let me walk you through it. He goes, dude, we're, we are so backed up at my shop because they have a race team. He goes, our maintenance is getting so backed up. He goes, and people are willing to wait, not because we're the only person that can do an oil change, but they don't trust people. And they don't trust people because of what this guy went through, right? People don't just magically not trust you, Right. The reason that people don't trust mechanics is because somewhere along the line, they've had a mechanic do something ridiculous. And this guy's not an unreasonable guy. He's super wealthy. So he doesn't care about the nickel and diming. He cares that you did the wrong thing. And so now this guy has this great Porsche life with them. And he actually leaves a lot of his cars stored with this company. Like he's so comfortable after being so miserable all because of what? And so he goes on and tell the, the shop owner goes on and looks at me and he goes, Look, man, we're just honest with people and we just do what we say we're going to do. Let that sink in. That this guy is basically running a multi-million dollar business and all he'll tell you is, hey, man, we're professional. We keep our word. We do what we say we're going to do. We treat our clients fairly. That's his secret to business. So we end up talking more. And I go, so what are you seeing in the market? He goes, we're seeing less and less talent. A lot of people under the age of 30 not wanting to get into it. He goes, I got two 25-year-olds that are headed to a race with us this weekend. I asked them if they were pumped up. He goes, they basically shrugged their shoulders. He goes, I can't believe it. He goes, dude, I'm so excited to go and do this 30 years into my career. And we got people, it's hard to get people excited about what we do. All of you that are trying to employ employ people, and I don't care if it's in detailing or something else, because I know we have a lot of different listeners. If you're around multi-million dollar race teams and you're not excited, you got to go find something else to do. But he's saying, hey, look, man, it just doesn't matter who we hire. They're not that excited or they're not that good or they don't understand professionalism. And so we sit here and we have this conversation 
you know, like the one we had on our Tuesday episode about value. $2,500 he thinks he could charge for just a basic oil change. Why? Because people value his company and he's not doing anything out of the ordinary. He doesn't have some skill set to turn a wrench and do an oil change better than you or I can do, but he has trust. And so here's what happens. We start to have this conversation more and more, and we go deeper and deeper, and we're having a good time. We're talking cars. We're bullshitting. And it got me to a thought of what so many people ask me, you know, how do I do this? And how do I get into this? And, and how do I? Well, let's talk about something. People will only fire you or not retain your services if they think they can replace you. So the reason he can keep charging more and more money is because everybody that does business with him is convinced they can't go find another one of him. And the same goes for all you detailers. If you think it's your skill set that people are going to say, I can't find again, that's a part of it. But the biggest part of it is, are you on time? Are you clean? Are you professional? Do you know how to talk to them? Do you know how to be honest with them in a tactful way? And so when you talk to these other shop owners, and he's on the complete other side of the business than I am, he has the same issues and the same things he's seeing that we see and we discuss on this podcast all the time. But he asked us to get a job done. He knew it was unreasonable. I worked until about 1030 that night. Uh, we had to do some of the hand trimming at his shop to get the car back in there. They were going to a race the next day, et cetera. But he's so thrilled that he's found my company because now a part of him can send his clients to us and he is not worried or stressed that the wrong thing is being done. And he said, you know how hard it is for me to find somebody to tint windows and do detailing and step in and, and, and help us with our clients? He goes, I basically don't ever refer anybody except for you guys. And I've only found you within the last year or two. It's a hell of a thing to say. Hell of a thing to think about is that we're getting more and more into a place where people can't find plumbers and they can't find electricians and they can't find people to refer people to because they don't trust anybody that's going to do the right thing. A lot of people can do electrical work and they can do just damn fine electrical work. They're going to show up or they're going to be drunk the night before. They're going to work their ass off and get the job done right. Who knows? It's the same for detailers. It's the same story I can tell you when somebody says, oh, I'm great at polishing paint, but nobody wants to pay me. There's something else behind it. But let's talk about this project. Man, a lot of hand trimming, laid film, uh, doing a new way of laying film for me. I'm using a lot more steam. We're not actually using even a tax solution anymore, uh, except for minor here and there. We're really, really pushing the envelope of what we want to do in my shop. It's great to get back into it. You know, a slip and a tack solution, you know, that's how I came up. That's how a lot of 99% of film gets installed today. Uh, I think I found a better way and, and, and have, have walked myself into a better way, uh, you know, through talking to some people about what they do and whatnot. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. The one thing film has done for me, especially this type of, of, of install, is it's reinvigorated my love for detailing a car. We had to fix a little minor paint transfer and rip off a couple pieces of film on this vehicle to get the new film on. Uh, I shared 
how you get film off really safely on this old of a car uh, in the HyperClean Specialist Group. Another reason to join is I shared that in there. But this project opened my eyes a lot. And, and the reason it opened my eyes is because people are out there searching for somebody that's going to be honest, it's going to be forthright, and that's not going to go out of style. It's getting more and more in demand than ever before. Let's talk about this car that I got to have a little fun with. 1995, the pedals, I forgot. I haven't driven one of these in a while. The pedals are so close together and the clutch is so heavy. It's actually kind of a workout to drive this thing. I mean, I love driving it, but the clutch was super heavy. It had a fixed seat in it because the guy's a little bit taller, uh, which fit me just fine. But but the the pedals were so close together. And, you, you know, until you experience that, again, you always forget. So got it out, had a lot of fun. I love the shifters on these cars. I love these old school uh, gearboxes on these vehicles. To me, it's, it. I don't know. I can see more and more every day why the analog driving experience is, is the price is going through the roof on them because there's something about getting in this car. And this is what happened to me. The way the door closes, the noise it makes, that latching sound. And then you drive it and you, and you don't have the radio on and you're just experiencing the car and there's no bells and whistles. And I have that with my BMW. And I told you guys, that's what really draws me to it. But this is even more analog. This is even more rough. And the suspension's really good. And he's got a great brake package on it. And it's just so much goddamn fun to drive. But you forget little small things, right? Like you forget the little lever to, to open up the gas tank. And you forget these little things that make these cars really special to me. And I know to a lot of you as well as you go, this isn't saying that today's cars aren't great. There's a lot of great cars being built. There's a lot of crap, but there's a lot of great cars being built. And the modern amenities are great. But there's something about going back and driving one of these really, really nice 50,000-mile 1995 Porsches that you go, you know what? This is a hell of a lot of fun. I had to be careful because I, I got fairly large feet. You know, I wear, wear 12 to 13 depending on the brand. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, Dan, there's not a lot of room on these pedals. And I really had to get used to it. So I came back and I told the guy, I go, damn, dude, I always forget. He goes, oh, me too, man. He goes, we're driving so many modern Porsches. He goes, I just, you know, driving it over here and, and, and hanging out with you when I brought it, you know, this and that. And it was like, we both see it the same way. But again, I've been having a lot of great experiences talking to these car people. I mean, this is something I'm going to share again and again and again, man. You got to find something to get you fired up. Getting in this Porsche got me fired up. I didn't care that I had to work until 1030 at night, uh, just hand trimming the pieces and whatever. It is what it is, man. This was such a cool project. We had a bunch of windshield film go on in the last week. We have a lot of things going on, and I feel very fortunate to where my company is now, where we're just bringing in so much business since this shop opened. And I actually told Marty, and I'll tell you guys this, I underestimated how much work this shop was going to get. I mean, basically now we could roll and I'm hoping I'm crossing my fingers. We may have a Carrera GT coming in for really, really extensive detail. And I hope I don't want to jinx it. I'm not going to say too much, but a very, very unbelievable restoration on a Carrera GT has every intention of coming to the shop uh, very soon when they finish up some touches on it. And if that happens, this shop is going to be worth it for me because you know, we just saw one of those paint to sample go for about 2.7 million. 
only yellow colored one. That's a very special car to me. I have driven one. I have been around them before, but I think it's the last truly special vehicle that Porsche ever built. And I think it's on its way to being a five to $10 million car in its history. So if we're able to bring one of those to the shop, that's always going to be worth it for me. Look, I've already seen it. I've already been around it. Uh, I'm going to be able to drive this one. It's a matter if they're going to want to spend the money to really go through an extensive detail or not. We'll see in the future. But I wanted to share that story. Let's talk about Pebble Beach. Okay. For those who don't know, big auction at Pebble Beach is coming up in the middle of August. I think it's the 18th through the 20th. That's a big part of my past. Uh, you know, currently I don't have anything going to Pebble Beach through my collectors. But some things have been announced, and I want to kind of talk about what this auction means. A lot of times Pebble Beach, to me, Pebble Beach is the best car event that I think exists personally. That and Amelia Island are the two, but Amelia Island doesn't touch Pebble because of where Pebble's at, Monterey, all that kind of stuff, the quail, all kinds of different stuff like that. I want to talk about what's being said leading up to this auction. Everyone's trying to make it as it's going to be a signal for the, for the foreseeable future of the auction car market, and I want to tap the brakes on that. Number one, you already have massive cars going there. You're going to see massive numbers no matter what. And this is what I want to keep driving home on this podcast. The middle to lower part of the, of the car auction market is already being hit. It's been hit now for the last three to five months. The top of the market and special vehicles are still going to go for massive numbers because the wealthy don't care about the economy. The middle to low cars are the ones that are going to be hit, and they're going to be hit at Pebble. They're not going to set records on these high mileage BS cars anymore. And we shared that a few episodes back, but I'm starting to see articles being written by a lot of people that I like and a lot of people I respect. And I just happen to disagree with them that Pebble beach is going to be some signifier of what's happening. Well, they already have a special car being sold at Sotheby's a 1955 Ferrari 410 sport spider. This is already going to have a sticker by their estimation of somewhere between 35 and 40 million. It's going to be probably the highest price car ever sold. Let's go back to the Mercedes auction. Now that more's come out, I always put an asterisk, buy something that could be a tax write-off. The, the 140 plus million dollar sale in the Mercedes auction not too long ago on that car could be a tax write-off for that buyer. I'm not sure. It's what I'm being told is it was for setting up a charity tax implications. That's why you see like the first ever Corvette of the, of the C8 run might do a couple million dollars. Well, usually what happens is the 0001 VIN number goes to a charity. And so you see these elevated numbers and nobody ever tells you honestly that that's not because it's the first one. It's because also it's a charity auction which is a tax write-off. It's not a negative. That's just the story behind it. And so you got a 1955 Ferrari 410. Look, by all accounts, this is going to be the biggest auction ever. Let's take the Mercedes out of it, please. You got a McLaren F1 that's just been announced at a private auction that's going to take place. That's going to bring a huge number. Super cool car if you've never actually been around one or looked at them, looked into them online. Uh, Three-seater, it's an amazing car. Go check it out. But one car I'm excited about because I love these cars. A Lexus LFA is going to be at the auction. Now, I know what everybody's going to say. You can get those all the time. 
probably the best production car ever built, or, or excuse me, one of the best engine sounds ever built on a car. I love Lexus LFAs, uh, completely underrated vehicle by almost every collector I talk to. The ones that know, know. The ones that don't, don't have a clue. LFAs, to me, anytime I can watch an auction of one, the best sounding engine maybe ever built. So we'll have more coming out of that auction here as we get towards the end of August, but I want to share that thought. Don't be the person that buys into the hype of this is going to show us we're going to get a little bit of data point here. You do have a Michael Schumacher F1 car, I believe, from like 1986 that's already been announced for auction. That's pretty cool. It won the uh, Formula One championship. That'll go for a big number. You're going to have big numbers at this auction, but it's not going to be indicative of anything other than the top end of the market is always going to be healthy, and the middle to low end of the market has already started to get battered up. And again, if you're talking to people about cars, it's really high mileage examples that are going to be hit. People fed on those for two years. The train has stopped. That's what should stop. That's what's going to stop. But you're still going to sell a 1955 Ferrari 410 for a huge number. Don't take anything other than the data point of this is where we're at. Don't think it signifies what the next year is. We have no idea what, what's going to happen in the market. So we can't really predict a lot just because Pebble Beach has a big sale or not big sale or whatever. Just enjoy it. Start checking into what they've already announced. And like I said, the McLaren F1, super cool car. LFA is always going to be something I find special, although I know a lot of people underrate them. But the 55 Ferrari 410 Sport Spider is up for sale. And it's always going to be a big number. So I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode. Again, thank you for all the support, and we'll talk to you next week.